No Gray Zone podcast is a frank and honest conversation on topics related to sexual abuse, harassment, child exploitation, and domestic and workplace violence. The opinions are our own, based on years of experience as special victims prosecutors. Any study, book, or product we mention is based on our own review and are not sponsored. Links and titles can be found in the podcast notes. You can also learn more at rightresponseconsulting.com. Listener discretion is advised. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring too much. Is it too much to ask that you be all mine? I never was good at sharing. I'm just good at caring. Welcome back. I'm Katherine Marsh. And I'm Melissa Hopmeyer, and this is No Gray Zone Podcast. Today we are ending our series on consent, and we're going to answer the five most frequently asked questions we get as prosecutors when it comes to consent. We've talked a lot in this first series about body autonomy, how to talk to your kids about consent. We've also covered incapacitation and coercion. But when it boils down to it, The number one question that we get asked is what is consent or how do I know if my partner has given consent? And legally, it's a tough question when you're trying to prove a case beyond a reasonable doubt. Catherine and I both know that because there's a difference between bad behavior and criminal behavior. But in your daily life, consent should be easy. It's an agreement between parties to engage in sexual activity. Okay, Melissa, that sounds very legal to me, like an official contract. So here are some tips. Remember, consent is required each and every time there is sexual activity. And when consent is withdrawn, which can be annoying, but consent can still be withdrawn at any time, the sexual activity must stop immediately. Also, a current or previous relationship does not equal consent. And here are some big ones. Bodily movements, nonverbal cues like moans are not consent. Neither is silence or the lack of active resistance. Sex should be something both parties enjoy. And when that's not the case, that's not consent. So know the lines, the cues, the acceptable behavior. Talk with your partner ahead of time and make sure you both know what consent means. Another question we get as prosecutors is, can I report my sexual assault anonymously? Yeah, this one comes up a lot in the context of college campuses or even smaller communities where there's still a stigma related to sexual assault. And the answer is both yes and no. You can anonymously report your sexual assault to a hospital, and they can and will complete what we call a Jane Doe or a John Doe examination. The hospital will complete the same sexual assault exam that a reporting person would have done. They will check for injuries, provide medication, and collect forensic evidence. That evidence will be given an individualized number and stored. The 2016 National Best Practices for Sexual Assault Kits recommends that states store sexual assault kits for at least 20 years, and sometimes indefinitely, depending on a state's statute of limitations for the crime. Every state differs, so make sure to check your local laws. 
So while you can report to the hospital anonymously, and let me say, we definitely encourage you to go to the hospital if you've been sexually assaulted. You need proper medical treatment, and that can range from Plan B and HIV preventive medication. They might test for toxicology reports or a strangulation exam. They may give you a CT, whatever medically you need. Um, and we'll discuss sexual assault exams in detail in a later series, um, but we want to make that clear. An individual's medical well-being should never be jeopardized because they're fearful of reporting. And so you can go to a hospital and report anonymously. But if you want to file criminal charges or a complaint with Title IX at your local school or university, you have to be identified. In the criminal realm, the U.S. Constitution provides defendants with certain rights, including the right to cross-examine their accuser. And recently, changes to Title IX made the rules similar to essentially mirror criminal cases. And we'll talk about Title IX a little bit later in our series. Absolutely. And until then, let's move on to question number three. I'm afraid of scarring my children by talking to them about sexual abuse, but I'm also afraid not to talk to them about it. What should I do? Talk to them. You don't have to scare them to talk to your children about body autonomy or consent. You just have to give them the tools we've already talked about. Exactly. So much about preventing sexual abuse is removing the stigma around our body parts and talking about our body parts. If your kids know that they have the right to say no, and that if someone makes them feel uncomfortable, you will back them up, then they will use their voices, and that will help stop abuse. And this is why we stress that consent education reduces sexual assaults. So as your children get older and it becomes appropriate, talk to them about consent and how to know if their partner is consenting. Don't just assume they'll know. We know these conversations can be uncomfortable and no one really wants to talk to their children about sex. But child sexual abuse and sexual assault thrive on silence. Sexual offenders bank on a child not telling, on a friend not believing, and on a survivor not reporting. And really, that's why we started this podcast. It's what it's all about. We're going to answer tough questions, and we want to bring these issues into the light to stop abuse and assault through education and awareness. Another question we're asked often is, what are the signs my child is being abused? And this can be a tough one. There is no one way a victim of abuse or sexual assault reacts. Exactly. However, there are some signs that should raise red flags and have parents follow up on. If your child shows up with a sexually transmitted infection, excessively talks or has knowledge about sexual topics, uh, displays inappropriate sexual behavior for their age. Um, And and if you want more tips, you can look to organizations like RAIN, the Mayo Clinic, and NHS. They have some great resources and tips on their websites. But again, we want to stress, not every child or even every survivor of sexual abuse or sexual assault responds the same way. And there is no wrong or right way to respond to abuse or assault. And this is why I think it's perfect that the last frequently asked question we have is what is the percentage of false reports? Yeah, that is a good one and one we're asked a lot. And there's so much misinformation about false reporting of sexual assaults. I've seen websites and I've seen people talk and um, at different conferences and they report between 20 to 40% of sexual assaults as falsely reported. And that is just not true. It's not even close to true. Exactly. A 2014 study that analyzed the LAPD police data found that the rate of false reports among cases reported in 2008 was 4.5%. 
a 2017 study that utilized FBI data for a five-year period from 2006 to 2010 concluded that approximately 5% of the allegations of rape were deemed false or baseless. And a 2016 meta-analysis of seven different studies addressing the exact same question estimated that 5.2% of rape allegations were false. Yeah, and a 2010 Violence Against Women study called False Allegations of Sexual Assault, an analysis of 10 years of reporting cases, found that the number of false reports was really between 2 and 10%. And that really falls in line with false reports on all other crimes. I'll say that again. Sexual assaults are falsely reported as much as robberies, burglaries, carjackings, and any other type of assault. There is not a greater amount of false reporting when it comes to sexual assault. And while no one wants to be the subject of a false complaint, it's important to put that into perspective, especially because we know that sexual assault is so underreported to the police. Well, that's all the time we have. If you want to learn more on this topic or have questions, you can find us on social media, No Gray Zone RRC on Instagram or Twitter, and No Gray Zone on Facebook. And if you like the podcast, subscribe and tune in for our next series focusing on child exploitation. There are no excuses when it comes to sexual assault or not having the right response when it comes to sexual harassment. We'll see you next time. This has been a No Gray Zone podcast. I'm just good at caring too much. I'm just good at caring.